Today's reading is from Romans chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During this season of Advent, we are looking at what the Scripture says about the new heavens and the new earth, about our future hope, and this is a wonderful season to be thinking about that as we have our desires, uh, kind of we're wearing them on our sleeves. We are thinking about the things that we desire this time of year, and It's my hope that over these few weeks, we are connecting our desires for two things, for Jesus now and for heaven later, for Jesus now and for heaven later, because Jesus is the desire of nations. He is the hope of the world. And so when people say Christianity is all about the future and just like endure suffering now, and then later you'll have a good life. That is partially true, but it's not fully true because we have life abundant in Jesus right now. He meets our truest desires, but there's still a gap between what we desire, what we hope for, what we want, and what is true. And during this season, we recognize, yes, Jesus has come, but we're waiting for him to come again to bring us into this age of gold. We sang the song earlier, uh, it came upon a midnight clear, and that verse, it says, with the ever-circling years, you know, whenever this comes, there, there comes round the age of gold, and during this age, peace will be over all the earth, and the world will give back the song that now the angels sing. What is the song that the angels sing? They sing, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth. The fulfillment of all human desires is found 
here tonight in Jesus and in the home that He is bringing us to. So last week we looked at our desire for a new creation and how the Scriptures tell us this desire is met in Jesus, a new creation. Now uh, we're going to be looking today about our desire for a happy home. We're looking at Romans 8. Let's pray and ask for God's help before we look at this passage together. Our God and Father, we do ask for you to be near to us in your Son and by your Spirit, in your beloved Christ, who we celebrate was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was delivered over died, was buried, was raised from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, the same Christ who intercedes for us. We trust in Him, and we ask that You would help us to see that in Him we are Your sons and daughters. We are children. We belong in Your home forever. Give us that hope. Show us how our desires are met in You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I gave you an image, a picture, of the little girl who said, I, I don't want to go to heaven, I want to go to Narnia. Um, the new creation, perhaps we saw, is a little bit more like Narnia than we might have assumed. It's like our world, but elevated. That's the picture. I, I want to begin to, this week with another picture, perhaps that many of you know, maybe you've even seen this time of year or you're used to seeing, maybe you see it on Christmas Eve. And the, the picture that I want to give you is this, the final scene of It's a Wonderful Life. I'll describe the scene for you if you haven't seen it. George Bailey, uh, the, the hero of the story, Jimmy Stewart, this is an old movie for those who haven't seen it. He's in his home and he is surrounded by his family and his closest friends and there is singing, and he's holding his daughter, and they're bringing in money uh, to, to help solve his problem, to get him out of debt. And it is capturing one of the most joyful scenes that you can possibly imagine. It is the merriest Christmas. That's the scene I want to fix in your mind. This is a great uh, Christmas movie. Uh, the amazing thing about It's a Wonderful Life is... Uh, there's almost no plot to the movie. Many people have pointed this out before. Almost the entire movie is backstory. That's very unusual. Uh, in fact, I've heard one of my friends growing up said he hated the movie for that reason uh, because there was like no plot. So if you don't know, the, the, whole, the whole movie pretty much, except for the last 20 or 30 minutes, is the backstory of George Bailey's life. And George Bailey is this likable character. He is, uh, he's got big, ambitious dreams, and he keeps running into obstacles. He, he has all these desires to be important and to do big things in the world. But he always meets these obstacles that come his way with both responsibility uh, and also generosity. He runs his father's building and loan business, and he keeps the town going. And so every time he tries to go out into the world and fulfill his desires, he's met by these obstacles, and he must meet them with responsibility and generosity. He has no time for himself and no focus on himself. And inside, there's this growing resentment about the missed opportunities that he has. And so, in the story, an angel 
Clarence comes and shows him what his life would be like, because at his lowest point, George Bailey says, well, I'd probably be better if I had never been born. And the angel shows him what life would be like without George Bailey. And it's this horrible vision where all the, everything is falling apart. And as he looks back, he realizes what he wants. And, and at the, the climax of the movie, he says, take me back. I want to go back home. In other words, it takes him an entire lifetime of longing and groaning to realize what he wanted all along was to matter to his family and friends. And I would say that as a very human desire, this internal groaning we have to be received, to be loved, to be cherished by those to whom we are closest. And that may be a desire that is met in some small part by your family now, and it may not. Many of us are not close to family, and I mean that in both senses of the word. We may not be close to family. Some of us are Phoenix transplants. We don't have family nearby, or we have very little family nearby. But many are also not relationally close, maybe to your entire family or to certain parts of your family. Family is this place of desire, but it's it's also a place of longing. Some of us have been wounded by family. Some of us are annoyed by our family. Some of us uh, don't have a safe family to be a part of. It's not safe for you to be home, either because of abuse or uh, wounding in the past, or it's not physically safe. And even if we, on the whole, have a good family, as the Lord has blessed me with, there is always a sense of lack, isn't there? There's always a wondering. It's never quite what we want but it's built into us. Here's what I want us to see from Romans chapter 8. This desire is met in Jesus Christ, and it's met in our desire for heaven. Heaven is a home. Here's how we might say it. Heaven is the eternal gathering of the closest family and the dearest friends. An eternal gathering of the closest family and the dearest friends. Let's look at those two things. The closest family, what our hearts long for is met by God. The family is something that God, it was God's idea, by the way. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 and 15 says this, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named or is sourced, it derives from. Every family on earth derives its familiness, in other words, from God. God's idea for how people exist in the world is family. And the first way that our desire for family is met when we encounter Christ is that we are adopted into the family of God. It doesn't matter what our story is or how close we are with our family If we are in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. Verse 14 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Or we could say sons and daughters. The word is sons there. 
Um, but this is, we'll talk more about this in a second. This is a legal adoption in Rome. It would have gone to the sons, and Paul's using that as a picture for us. But as the ESV footnote there reminds you, and it does every time sons is used in the New Testament, this doesn't exclude the ladies. Uh, this is sons and daughters of God. We have been adopted into the holy family of God. And when we realize that, God has adopted us now, and God will adopt us in the future. That's heaven. We'll see that. But what is this whole idea of adoption? Why does he say you're adopted into the family of God? And it's hard to think about uh, examples of this from the Old Testament, although you could say that the whole overall theme of what God is doing in the Old Testament, he calls Israel his firstborn son. And what God does is he, he... elects a nation out of all the nations, and he says, you are now part of my family. But what Paul is doing in Romans is he's taking the concept really from the Roman system of adoption. Adoption in Rome was primarily to secure an inheritance, to secure a family name. And he's saying that what happens like that in the world, and what has happened to all of Israel, the firstborn of God, the nation of Israel, now happens for every single person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. They are brought into the family of God. They get adopted literally into the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. I hope you noticed that as we read it, how the Father is there, the Spirit is there, and the Son is there just in those first few verses. God is called our Father. In verse 15, it says that we cry out, Abba, Father. And of course, the whole idea of being sons and daughters means that we have a father. Christ is called our brother. We're fellow heirs. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Well, how can we be fellow heirs with Christ. It's because He is our brother. We have the same Father. You see the family language here. The Spirit also is called the Spirit of adoption. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the Spirit of adoption. That's capitalized. That's the Holy Spirit of adoption. This whole chapter, Romans 8, is a great study on who the Holy Spirit is. But in a general sense, we see here that He helps us understand. He leads us. Those who are led by the Spirit of God or sons of God, He leads us into this adoption and shows us, yes, though you have a hard family, though you may not have the family that you want now, you have been adopted by the Father and the Son, and the Spirit shows us this. It shows us the staggering truth. We are now, by faith, part of God's family. Regardless of the family that you have now, whether it's good, pretty good, or really bad, if you are in Christ, you are part of the best family. What makes this the best family? What are the benefits of being in the family of God. There's three that I want to draw out from this passage. First, there is intimacy. And when you think about what you want for your family, don't you want an intimacy? 
Isn't that your desire to be actually really close? But look at the closeness in verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Two very significant words in that verse. The first one is cry. To cry out. It's the word kratzo in, in Greek. It's a onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it is. Kratzo, like I'm crawling out. It's the same word that's used by the blind man who's desperate for Jesus to hear him. It's the same word used by the disciples where in the, they're in the boat and the storms are coming and they're fearful that the boat is going to capsize and they cry out to Jesus. This is a desperate cry. It's not scripted. It's not controlled. It's the cry of help. It's the cry of a child who doesn't think but just screams out, Daddy, Abba, Father. That's the second significant word, Abba, there. Now you may wonder, if you slow down and read that, why is the word Abba there? I mean, that's not an English word. The rest of the words that we just read are English. Why why does he include Abba? Well, because when Paul wrote Romans, he wrote it in Greek, But he didn't use the Greek word. He used the Aramaic word for father or daddy or papa. It's a shortened, the casual use of the word. And so when he was writing in Greek to the Romans, who that's what they spoke and read at the time in Rome, um, Greek culture had spread throughout the whole uh, world, basically. And so now they were speaking Greek and Rome, and he put Abba in there, which is not a Greek word either. It is an Aramaic word. Why? Because of the intimacy that he wants you to see. Jesus used the word Abba. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. When he talked to his father, he said Abba. And Paul says you can use that same word. The very same word that Jesus spoke and to his father, you can say to your father because you are now that close to the father. There is an intimacy. There is also assurance. Isn't assurance the desire of our hearts when we think about family? Because you want to know what your place is in the family. You want to know that you belong. You want to know that you're not loved less than others. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God acts like a second witness to you belonging. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We need a second witness. We have a first witness ourselves. Are you a Christian? Have you trusted in God? Have you been adopted by Him? Well, you think that you have been. There are times perhaps where you feel like maybe not. Maybe I'm foolish to think that I've been adopted into the family of God. I'm too unworthy. And there's a second witness, the Holy Spirit Himself, the Spirit of adoption that then says, no, I'll give witness to that. You are a child of God. You're in the family. 
You belong here. You need not worry that you are left outside. There is an intimacy. There is an assurance. Third, there is an inheritance. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What is the inheritance? What are we heir of? This is the glory that God is sharing with us. And it's many things. The Scripture talks about it's the family business, so to speak. It's all of God's good and precious promises. The book of Revelation tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will receive a new name. It tells us that we will receive a crown of glory, a crown of God. The Bible tells us that we will participate in judging the earth with the angels. The the book of Ephesians says, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are yours. This would all be included in what this idea of an inheritance. We are rich. It's the joy of the saints to know that we have everything in God. I think again, of It's a Wonderful Life and all the money coming in to George Bailey's table far exceeding his debts. He wasn't being um, stingy. He, was, he had given his whole life away and then it, was, it came back to him and said, your debts are taken care of. And I think about his brother coming in. Um, George Bailey's brother comes in. From, he's a war hero. And he comes in and he gives a toast to George Bailey the richest man in town. And it's just part of this joy. And that, that's, that is the sense here. That when we come and we're with the closest family that we've ever had, that God says, everything that I have is yours. I give it to you. It's a huge gift, but it's more than a gift. It goes beyond a gift Because an inheritance is not just a gift, though it is a gift, it is also a legal right. That's why he's using this Roman terminology here. He says, look, in Rome, once you sign on the dotted line, it is a right to an inheritance. And the Bible says when Christ suffered on our behalf, he gave us the right to become children of God. He gave us the audacity to say, this is my birthright. This is mine. Hebrews tells us that we should enter into the Lord's presence with boldness to claim what is ours by right. We are not servants. We're family. The closest possible family. How do we get into this family? You can be there right now. You can be adopted into the family of God. The Scripture says that adoption is part of what we call salvation. Salvation, we're saved from our sins, from the darkness that we live in. We live a life outside of God. We repent and we follow after God. Then He brings us into His family. John Murray, the great theologian, says that adoption, what we're talking about, is the pinnacle of salvation. It's the apex of salvation. It's the, it's the most beautiful expression of what God does for us. Not only does He save us from our sins, not only does He make us right in a legal sense, not only does He restore us to Himself in relationship, but He makes us family. 
It's the apex of salvation. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Faith. The book of Hebrews tells us by faith, Abraham. This is, this is how you come into the family of Abraham. It is through faith. Repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptized into the name of Christ. And you will have these benefits. Intimacy, assurance, and an inheritance. You can be part of the family of God now. It is true right now. If you trust in Christ, your desires can be, for family can be met right now. Now, some would say, this sounds easy. I just need to believe. I just need to say a prayer or something like that. It's not as easy as you may think because it's simple, but not easy. Because the way of salvation is also the way of suffering. I wonder if you saw that at the end of verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. The family of God doesn't just share privilege. It shares hardship. And the passage tells us that we go through the same suffering that Jesus went through in order to receive the same glorification that He received. once heard someone say it like this. In the Bible, how do we understand suffering? Well, oftentimes we think of suffering as chronological. And especially if we're talking about heaven, we say, hey, you suffer now on earth, and then one day you'll be glorified in heaven, which is true. But it's very chronological in our minds. When the Bible talks about suffering, it often talks about it in a more causative sense. Meaning, our glory comes through suffering. Jesus Christ was glorified through His suffering. And so the very suffering that we are experiencing, God is using to make us His glorified sons and daughters. The way of Christ. Glory through suffering is the way of the Christian. And here's where we see it's not just a promise for now. It's a promise for the future. Because while God has adopted us into His family, we're still groaning for it to be fully true. We don't have time to go into all these verses here, but I wonder if you noticed all the three groanings the three groanings of the second part of this passage. Creation groans, we groan, and the Spirit groans. Creation groans. I'll just point these out to you in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. We groan, verse 23. And not only the creation, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies. Well, on top of those two groans, the earth and ourselves, the Spirit groans. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us 
with groanings too deep for words. Our adoption into the family of God is real, but it is not final yet. In the meantime, we wait and we struggle. We groan towards the desire that our hearts were made for until heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, when creation will not groan anymore, when our hearts will not groan and the Spirit need not groan with us and intercede for us because then we will fully be part of the family of God. And while we wait, we need to know that the wait is worth it. Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We wait for this with patience. There is a glory to be revealed. There is a full adoption. There is a day when we will have the closest possible family. I will close with the second and briefer point, the dearest friends. As George Bailey got a lot of friends around him as well. Pretty much everyone in the movie, almost everyone, with one notable exception I'll talk about in a second, is in that room with George as he celebrates. Who will be in heaven with us? Will we know them? Well, let's not forget a very significant word that Paul uses throughout, um, probably 20 times, I didn't count it up, in this passage. We. Our. He's talking to the church of God. To believers. They will experience this together. This bringing into the family. This inheritance. This intimacy. This ceasing of groaning. Will all be experienced together. As the church. And not only those who are alive. But those who have died in Christ. As Paul says elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, listen to this, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. No one that's in Christ is lost, dead, or alive. Those who have died in Christ are brought with him into the new heavens and the new earth, not bodiless souls floating around, not angelic, untouchable beings, but human beings with resurrected bodies. The ones we know, the ones that we're going to need to get to know, the ones who live before us, the ones who will live after we are gone. And I love the way that Jesus pictures the coming future kingdom so often in his stories so often in his parables as a feast where people are brought in because you can't have a feast alone. It's together. It's with those that you love. This is an actual party with actual guests. Now, some will ask, and it's not really the focus of this series, but I, I want to just mention it because it seems like the honest thing to do 
What about those who are not in Christ? What about those who are outside? My family and my friends who are outside of God. And we do need to know. There there are those who will not be at the party. Those who don't want it. In the story that I was just talking about, Jesus tells several of them, but in the great banquet story, Luke chapter 14, he says the kingdom of God's like this, that a man invites his friends to a party. And he tells his servant, go and make, tell them that everything is made ready, but those who are invited make excuses. I've just bought land. I have animals to care for. I just got married. And so none of them come to the party, and the man is angry, and he says, well, go out to the streets and find the poor and the crippled and bring them in. And as I was thinking about that this week, I remembered, you know, Mr. Potter and It's a Wonderful Life isn't in the final scene. Mr. Potter is the antagonist of the movie, if you don't remember. He's the one who's against George Bailey, and he, he's the one who stole the money that put George Bailey in debt. And the last picture we have of him is saying, you can go to jail, George Bailey. He doesn't want to be part of the party. He doesn't want to be there. And it's a great sadness. And I always felt so bad for Mr. Potter. But it's more real to life. Not everyone will be at the feast. You need to know this. But it's not because they're not invited. Everyone who hears the call of the gospel, the invitation of the Lord to the banquet can come to the party. Everyone can be a son or daughter of God who hears, and as the Scripture says, by faith, trusts in this. Look how it's put in verse 24. For in this hope, we are saved. In this hope, we are saved. What is the hope? The adoption of sons and the, the redemption of our bodies. There is a particular hope that you must hope in to be saved. It is the hope that you are now the son or daughter of God and that your body will be restored. You're invited to the gathering of God's closest family and dearest friends forever. He invites you into this intimacy, into this assurance, and He shares His inheritance to all those who have faith. And we need to know God wants this. He wants us to be part of His family forever. Let's pray.